Welcome to The Sky's the Limit with host Dee Brown, the president and CEO of the P3 Group, the nation's largest minority public private partnership real estate developer. Here's Dee. Joining me today on The Sky's the Limit is Charles Sims Jr. Charles is the founder and CEO of the Sims Financial Group, which is headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. The Sims Financial Group primarily provides insurance and financial services to individuals, families, business owners, and professional athletes. Sims is a sudden wealth and retirement specialist. The Sims Financial Group provides investments, employee benefit plans, college funding analysis, estate planning, retirement planning, life, health, and disability insurance. Charles, welcome to The Sky's the Limit. I'm glad to have you on the show today. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Charles, you've had a long, illustrious career uh, in, the, the, in the insurance and financial services industry, one that has spanned uh, 50 years, a half a century, which is uh, yes. as I am old. How <laughs> do you, you were born, Mr. Brown. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you have been recognized nationally for your outstanding performance uh, in the areas of insurance and financial planning. And so tell me and my listeners a little bit about the Sims Financial Group. Well, thank you. The Sims Financial Group, as you said before, is a full service financial services firm. We actually have a six step process when we meet with clients. Step one, we like to talk about the goals and objectives and we like to gather data in part two. And number three, we actually do an analysis on that information. In step four, we make specific recommendations, then we implement it, and lastly, we do periodic review. We never actually leave with any product. We definitely like to be a, someone that do more like a doctor, do a complete analysis for making any specific recommendations. So anything you do with us was based on a comprehensive needs analysis. Got you. So it's a very detailed process. Now, you've been, as I stated in the uh, opening, uh, you've been doing this for 50 years, which is uh, obviously a significant uh, career. What type of uh, things have you seen evolve or change over the last 50 years? So as you said that, I started as a debit agent. Those of you who've been around a while know that's to gather the big book. Right. That used to come to mama and grandma's house. Absolutely, I remember <laughs> You remember that? Yeah. We did that, did that while in college so I can go to school. And over the years, we, we went through an evolutionary process. And just like any other creature, if you don't evolve, you die. Right. You, you, so basically, over the years, we've seen insurance change, financial services. I've, hold, I've held stockbrokers' licenses, insurance licenses, property and casualty licenses. And we use those licenses to help educators. I've earned a certified financial planner designation, life on the right of training council designation, certified mutual fund designation, all these things in order to evolve because the new environment you work in, you must evolve. If you don't evolve, you're going to become extinct like the dinosaur. That's right. So we, so there's been a lot of changes over the time. And our clients and the, the consumer should want to deal with people that evolve so that they can keep them on the cutting edge of what needs to be done in this ever-changing environment we live in. Hey, absolutely. I, I tell people all the time that, uh, you know, running a business is, a, is an ongoing educational process. If you're not continue, continually learning and educating yourself on best practices, uh, new technologies, innovations, uh, that you'll end up like the dinosaur or, or like uh, Blockbusters did, you know, uh, find yourself on the side of the road uh, uh, and then someone else would take your place. 
But you started. Listen, we'll, we'll just cut you off there for a minute. It's amazing you mentioned Blockbuster that Mr. Brown. Years ago, a group of us were going to get together and buy block, some Blockbusters. <laughs> and we learned right away that technology it's a, it's technology killed it. Right. People can sell a home and Netflix and chill now. They don't have to go to Blockbuster. That's right. And, and, the, and the interesting thing about it, I don't know if you ever studied that case study, but Blockbusters actually knew that Netflix was coming for them. And the uh, leadership there felt that uh, they didn't have to change. They felt that uh, no one would want to sit at home and stream videos uh, over the television. They, so they did not see uh, the risk of, uh, of uh, Netflix at that, at that particular time. And, of course, the, the rest of the story is pretty much modern history. Well, well another casualty of that is called BlackBerry. Yeah. BlackBerry owned it. Right. Blackberry, <laughs> everyone had a Blackberry. Right. We, we called them Crackberries. <laughs> right. And all they had to do was evolve. That's right. And they would have kept the market, but yeah. they chose not to. They so just, I, I agree with that. Yeah. And that's why at the Steel Financial Group, we are always on the cutting edge of evolution for that reason. Right, right. Now, one of the interesting parts of your story is that you started this uh, in this industry 50 years ago. And so at that time, you know, you were dealing with, you know, segregation, you, you know, you just come out of the civil rights movement. And uh, so what type of challenges and stereotypes that you have to deal with um, to get to where you are today? Well, basically at the time, believe it or not, I had a big afro. And, you know, <laughs> I think I've seen a few of those photos. <laughs> I'm sure you have. And uh, I came up, I was sort of a militant, so I, it didn't affect me as much because I didn't believe that what they said about me, you, you don't define who I am. Right. So the, the challenges, though, was making sure that you can do, be the best you can, given the environment that you live in, given the resources you were given. Uh, we, at, I worked for Universal Life Insurance Company while I was in college. It's an all-black-owned. That's why I met my first African-American uh, millionaire. I never met a millionaire in my life. So I was mesmerized working for this man who yeah. also owned Tri-State Bank in Memphis. And I watched what he did. He carved out a niche within our community. So that's what he did because he was limited to our community. So, right. but I watched over the years, he prepared people like myself to go forward. And I left there to go to John Hancock. Eventually, I was in management there. I was training their financial advisors in Boston. So that, that's part of the evolutionary process. You got to work and, and uh, play the hand that's dealt you. And so there were some challenges at that time. But you know, when you work and you're busy trying to be who you are, it's kind of hard to notice people trying to hold you back when you bust it through the door all the time. Right, right. That's what, that's what I've always done. <laughs> hey, that's what I think. Uh, all highly successful people, they figure out how they're going to uh, break through that glass ceiling. Uh, if they don't have a seat at the table, they, they'll bring their own table to the dance. So uh, I definitely understand that mentality. Now, one of the things in America that is pretty well known is that there's a significant uh, wealth gap uh, in communities of color. And I know over the last 50 years through your financial services uh, division, uh, you have used a variety of products, whether it's insurance, annuities, uh, you know, retirement accounts, et cetera, to try to help close that wealth gap. So tell me a little bit about the services you provide in that area and how you've been trying to help close the wealth gap in the communities of color for the last 50 years. Well, let me tell you, one of the biggest reasons is part of what you've done in real estate. A lot of people... The biggest reason that a lot of whites have a larger uh, wealth than uh, African-Americans is because of equity in their home. Right. Now, over the years, you provide homes for a lot of people. So you know that you, you've been, you've been uh, part of helping build wealth in that way. Right. Uh, so 
Well, we've found that a lot of times we don't even support one another. Correct. And the Jewish dollar circulate seven to nine times within their community. Right. And when it does leave the community, maybe to a housekeeper or someone picking their trash up, but nothing big. Right. Over the years, I've been trying to train our people, try to keep our money within our community whenever we can. But those of us who receive that money, we are held at the same standard or even sometimes a higher standard than the people they would have gone to ordinarily. So over the years, I've seen us do better. Uh, big, big strides have gone forward when we have learned to spend our money with our community. A lot of the high net worth individuals have become conscious of this, realize they don't live in a cocoon because right. Michael Jackson, uh, Mike Tyson, O.J. Simpson, when they came out to them, they realized when you thought you were over there with them and they came out to you, you, you could have been alone. Right. We, we came in, we came in, pulled you out. <laughs> so those of you who are watching this podcast, you know, you see organization, you know, like P3, uh, you know, uh, support us. And right. you're going to get the type of service that you expect to get. And I think that we as African-Americans would pull together and support one another. We will do uh, much, much better. And look, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, one of the things that has been really uh, high priority for me as a, as a business owner uh, is making sure that I'm able to reinvest in, in communities that look like me, uh, uh, investing back into uh, educational uh, institutions uh, that, that, that educate our people and people from our communities. And so I think that the, having that mindset that you can do good by also doing good uh, is is something that can help propel our people to the to the next level because I think that an important part of it, of my success has been giving back to uh, communities and institutions and organizations and providing opportunities for for employment and internships and and uh, a career advancement. So I think that's a very important point that you that you made. And in in addition to all of the things you do at Sims Financial uh, Group. You also have been the founder and chairman and delegate on a wide range of uh, boards and councils. And so tell me a little bit about how you're able to manage all those other responsibilities in addition to your primary responsibility, which is leading your organization. Well, you know, I think being on boards are helpful. It allows you to get your message over. I'll tell you a quick story. I almost got kicked off a bank board in the first meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm in this meeting sitting next to the president. He introduced me, blah, blah, blah. And as we sat down, you know Memphis, uh, White Haven. I saw a big picture of White Haven. They were putting a red line around White Haven. This was back in the late 1990s or early 2000s. And my question, playing Dom, I knew what that meant. Yeah. So why are they putting a red line around White Haven? Well, we don't think we can land here, land here, land there. I said, have you been to White Haven? It, it, uh, hell, Graceland's there. Have you heard Blueberry Estate, Lionsgate, blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, the percentage of uh, homes owned, the crime rate, blah. And I said, and so by this time, the president stopped the meeting and told us we need to take a break. He asked me to come to the hallway. Well, I started gathering my things. I'm thinking I'm going to get thrown out. He said, no, leave it there. <laughs> I'm packing up. He's going to kick me out. Because, <laughs> you know, you got the wrong one. If you're looking for a yes, man, you just right. got the wrong one. I'm not that one. Okay. The only one you paid me was nice. I like sitting here feeling important, but I'm, I'm not a yes man. Okay. Right. I'm just not... I hope somebody should have told you. Right. So I go in the hallway. He agreed with me. He just said, we're going to put, we're going to pin that and come in our next meeting. Fine. Come back in. He got pinned it. The next meeting, the lines were gone. Right. Okay. Yeah. So 
we have to put ourselves in a position where we can speak on behalf of our people. Right. Because when we sit on these boards, now we hear what's happening behind the door. Those, they dark, back room, but they're smoking cigars and making plans. Right. We need to get there if we can. And we, when we do, we don't need to be a yes, man. We need to speak up, be prepared to get thrown out. Right. And you get right. a lot more respect when you speak up. You know, respectfully, of course. That, and, and I think that last part is the uh, most critical piece because oftentimes uh, some of us will get a seat at the table and have an opportunity to be in that back room and listen to those conversations, but don't have the fortitude to speak up and, and stand up for what is right. And so we need more people like you uh, that get in positions like that, that do have the courage and do have the intestinal fortitude to, to be able to call p individuals to the carpet, because that's really the only way we're going to be able to advance our uh, uh, causes and, and issues and concerns is by having someone willing to to make that sacrifice and say, you know, if I get kicked off the board, oh, well, but I'm not going to be here just to go along with the, the status quo. So that's uh, very important. And so I think part of what may make you who you are from, I think, having that courage, you grew up in the segregated South in Memphis. And um, I know you did not come from, uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't grow up with a silver spoon in your mouth like, you know, some individuals. May have. We, didn't have a plastic, we didn't have a plastic spoon. So but tell me a little bit about growing up. Tell me a little bit about your early years in Memphis uh, growing up. Yeah, we grew up in North Memphis. Uh, my father uh, worked in a factory. Uh, it was nine children. So my mother was a homemaker. Uh, she had to be a homemaker. If she didn't, these nine children would have terrorized the city. And so I grew up with, with just my father working. Uh, we were never on public assistance. We sometimes may not have utilities, ate a lot of beans, but we worked, we were honest. We might not have the best clothes, but we were clean clothes. Uh, growing up without a lot, I never identified myself with what I had. See, that never defined me who I was, what kind of car I drove or what kind of clothes I wore. I just never measured who I was based on what I had or didn't have. Because the reason for that, Mr. Brown, if I lose everything, I'm still somebody. See, right. I don't want to take that. I'm nothing if I don't have anything. Because right. when I have anything, I mean, you thought I was uh, the richest man in the world. My <laughs> broke, my broke down. <laughs> so, so in growing up, of course, you had to learn to get stay away from the bad guys. Uh, you know, I noticed I'm very reserved. Yeah. And I watched the older guys on the street corners. And I'm looking at you. Uh, you live in these apartments. and you, you don't have much going on. You have teeth missing. You don't have anything. So why would I want to be like you? Right. You know, just if you look close, if these kids look closely at the bombs who try to recruit them, and you have an objective eye, there's no future in you. Right. No future. And I looked at that, you know. Uh, in fact, when I paid attention to that, it told me I need to go, go to work, get a job somewhere. Right. And I think I heard my father's feeling when I was just 14 years old. I asked my father, I said, Dad, uh, why are we poor? It doesn't even make sense. I mean, that doesn't make sense to be poor. I looked at his eyes. I remember the look in his eyes. I'm stupid 14-year-old saying something like that. And I asked him, let me get a job at 14. So I started, got my first job at 14, washing dishes. So I've been working ever since. So uh, I think working, I'm at a point in life now, I don't have to work. I don't really work because when you find something that you love, Mr. Brown, right. you don't never work another day in your life. That's it. That's I, a wrap. <laughs> yeah. I actually retired from working from other people uh, uh, 15 years ago. Fully retired. Yeah. Uh, at 55, was seven-figure 401k plan, blah, 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 blah. Never had to work. But I, I formed the Sims Financial Group because I want to make a difference in our community. We want to train our people 
how to manage money. You know, we live in a cap- capitalistic society. Right. That, so when you live in a capitalist society, you can't write different rules. Right. That's where you live. Yep. And, and right. some people say, well, I want socialism. Some people say, I want capitalism. I'm more of a middle of the road. When people need help, let's give them some help. Those who, uh, how about hand up? Those who cannot, let's help them. Right. Those who can, let's give you a hand up and teach you how to walk the straight and narrow. So sitting around doing nothing and using illicit drugs and doing bad things all day long, uh, if that's your form of capitalism, go, go to go to Cuba, uh, Russia, and try to ask. Tell them how that works. Right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, you, um, you said a lot there. And, uh, you know, um, I think because I came from a, a impoverished community as well and where there was more opportunity to do wrong than to do right. So, um, but I was, I think I was pretty observant like you. I look at a lot of guys and say, you know what? It's not, it's not a role model of me and I want to go the opposite direction. Right. But I'm going to pivot back to your, to your professional career and you were named uh, who's who in the financial uh, service industry. Uh, tell me how were you able to build your, your brand and keep it strong over the years? Yeah, it's a good question. I just think doing good work. Good work will eventually uh, take people to notice it. When people, uh, my, when I get on my BBB, Better Business Bureau, and I get a lot of people just citing the great things we've done for them, uh, people notice that. Uh, I do things like this on a regular basis. You can tell how much of an introvert I am. So I do this. <laughs> know who you are. And, uh, and I'm the uh, senior certified financial planner in South African-American uh, financial planner in Southeast United States. So I've been at that a long time and I go to a lot of conferences. So the biggest, biggest compliment is when your peers recognize you. Right. When right. your peers, everyone who heard this know what I mean. Because the general public may not know what we do or right. what you do or whatever, but when your peers hold you up, uh, that is how that who's who came about. I had no idea what it was, and I want to make sure that just a scam, but there have been several that we've been part of. So I think your life work sometimes speaks for itself. No, absolutely. I, I agree with you, with you 100%. Now, you were the first African-American that was inducted as a member of the John Hancock's Hall of Fame. Uh, tell me about the significance of that award and that, that achievement. Well, it is, it, it's one of my crowning achievements because, first of all, they had a qualification they called the President's Club. The President's Club, back this is back in the 80s and 90s, you had to earn six figures in commission, which is a lot of money. It's a lot of money now for some people, but back then it was a whole lot of money. Right. And you had to, you had to do it for 15 years. Wow. Once you, and what you've done for 15 years, and then in addition to that, you have to have other uh, educational background things that you've done. You have to have a, just, a, it's a whole big checklist. Well, in 1996, I became the first African-American to have all the check marks and qualify for the John Hancock Hall of Fame. And then I reached back and encouraged other ones because we have our conferences. Now, we've traveled the world, just so y'all know. I've been around this world three or four times. Some people ask me if I was in the military. No, John Hancock was an Olympic sponsor. So we got to go to Oslo, Norway, Ireland, uh, Japan. Uh, you know, I, I can name it. I can go on forever. All the places. And I went back and started telling our younger African-American brothers and sisters about this. And I think now we may have three or four, had three or four more after me. Uh, before I retired, I think it was two more before I retired from Hancock. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was definitely a proud moment. Uh, to have that and be one of be the first one in the history of that company, which was founded in 1862, to qualify 
uh, first African American. So I'm very proud of that achievement. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a, a big achievement and an honor. Um, but again, you've done so much. Uh, you achieved so much in this in this area. One of the areas that you specialize in is uh, in retirement planning, and so we know that again in communities of color. That's a challenging um, situation where oftentimes people retire and cannot maintain the same quality of life that they had while they were working. Uh, talk to my listeners about uh, proper uh, uh, retirement planning and, and the services that you provide in that area. Let me tell you, Mr. Brown, there's three phases in retirement planning. The first phase starts when you first enter the workforce. That is called the accumulation stage. That's the stage when you have a lot of things on your plate, trying to buy a house, maybe getting married, having children, saving for college. But during this time, you should be setting aside money for your retirement. Because what happens with money, the time value of money is the most powerful thing you have, compounded over a period of years. One person could start at 25, uh, saving $500 a month. If you want a million dollars at age 65, at age 25, at 6%, if you just put $500 a month, at age 65, you have a million dollars. If you wait till you're 45, now you got to save $2,200 a month to achieve the same thing, okay? So during the accumulation period, you can afford to be a little more aggressive because if the market drops, you got time to make up for it. Phase two starts when you're 55 years old. That's what we call the preservation stage. That's the stage when you want to preserve what you've done because if you've done what you're supposed to do, and you're doing the accumulation period, you can now cruise in because at this point, we have a predecessor. You only got 10 years. We can pretty much see over the horizon where you are, and now we can pretty much track a guarantee result. The last part, Mr. Brown, the most difficult part is called the distribution phase. How much money can I take out without going right out of money? Right. The worst thing you can be in this world is old, poor, and black. <laughs> right. <Okay? laughs> you don't want to be that. And you can't depend on your children to come in for you. Right. And you don't want to run out of money at 85 years old and limp up to Walmart so you can greet people. Right. It's okay to be a Walmart greeting people if that's what you want to do. Okay? So retirement is something to be taken serious. Those of you, because you're 40 years old, you don't have to worry about it. Yes, you do, because your clock is ticking. And when you do retire, as you said, you want to maintain your lifestyle, get rid of some debt. Get rid of some debt during that period of time. When you're doing your planning, plan for everything. Plan for college. Plan for uh, paying off debt. And so when you do retire, if you need X number of dollars a year to maintain the lifestyle that you crave while you're working, you should try to pay debt off so you can have less money and yet still maintain that lifestyle. If you like to travel, you shouldn't have to quit traveling. And right. I even suggest this. Those of you who have a profession that you like, not those who hate your job, when you retire, why not come back as a consultant? This way, you can work when you want to work. Why did I say come back to your same profession? Because if you go into a new profession and you're 65 years old, your boss probably going to be 35 years old. And that's not going to work. Right. So, so, and if you don't have a profession now that you like, maybe the last four or five years, think about what you want to do and go to school for that, train for that, and so that you have something to do. If the pandemic didn't teach you anything, sitting around the house doing nothing is not fun at right. all. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Not at all. So if you had to give some advice to a young person just entering the workforce that to, to really get them on the right path to um, financial freedom, freedom and, and proper retirement, what would that advice be? Okay. I'm glad you asked that question. As a kid, the B word, budget. Most people hate that word. 
But a budget is not a bad thing. All it does is lay your ducks in a row, uh, whatever lifestyle you want. So even if you're young, you start off making very little money, then you don't want to live beyond your means. Right. So budgeting is one of the things you do. And participate in your company 401k plan. And the question is, before you ask, what's the minimum amount he should put in his 401k plan? The minimum amount that allows you to get 100% of the company's match. Right. <laughs> right? That's the minimum. So if the company said we're going to uh, match 50 cents on a dollar of the first 5%, dog going to put 5%. Right. As a minimum. That's your minimum right there. Right. Okay. So cause if this, because at that point, uh, that's free money. If you're making $50,000 a year, that's $1,250 the company give you, and that's $2,500 you put in. That's $3,750 at 10%. You owe $4,000 the first year. Right. Okay? Right. So when they see those numbers, so, yeah, just start budgeting. And work hard, be loyal. Because um, so, so, your resume is something that you got to live with, just like your credit report. And if you don't, not doing the job you want, go to school or get a trade and learn to do, do the job you want and start early on both, both those endeavors. Absolutely. So we have a program at my company where we do uh, dollar for dollar after, after six months of employment, dollar for dollar up to 25% of your income. So if you, you want to, you, you heard, <laughs> <laughs> so you can, you can literally uh, get a 25% pay raise after six months on the job. Uh, just by investing in your in your retirement, and so I, I've actually created a program because it's a form of you, you know you, you taught me when I was in my in my early twenties uh, about golden handcuffs. And so it's, it's yes. one of my holding one of my golden handcuff techniques. But also is I want to be able to have uh, people retire uh, from this company who can say I retired you know with a you know multi million dollar retirement account because you know you hear about that from certain uh, companies certain industries. But it's not oftentimes that you hear someone telling that story from uh, an African-American-owned company. And so that brings me back to my next question, which is related to generational wealth. And generational wealth, obviously, is a, is a topic that is kind of foreign uh, to, um, to our people, right? And I was, um, I don't know if you read the book called, um, it's called uh, Black America Reconstruction. It was written by W.E.B. Du Bois. And so the, uh, that particular book, it, it educated me on why is it that um, some white people, even when their um, economic interests are aligned with those of African-Americans, why they will not support policies that would even benefit them. And so W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in the book that uh, white people receive, uh, even though they may be low wage earners, they get a uh, incentive pay by being white from you know, public perception and psychological perception that we don't have the benefit of. And it's because of that psychological difference uh, that they have, they don't align themselves with our economic interests. And so I say that to say, uh, or to ask you, uh, what do you think we can do to, to really help better educate our people about the importance of creating generational wealth? Because I do notice that even with business owners, Oftentimes, uh, we create successful businesses only to live the lifestyle that we want to live for ourselves and not think about perpetuating that business to our, you know, children uh, and keeping that business going from generation to generation. Well, what happens, Mr. Brown, is 
generational wealth is very difficult for people to conceive who've only worked in service industry jobs. And uh, of course, you and I, we're, we're minorities in being business owners in our community. Right. So as we encourage more of our people to do that, now let's, let's stop there for a moment. Even those who don't have their own company, uh, generational wealth is there for them as well. And that sometimes come with uh, educating the children about money. Uh, when you teach them the ABCs, teach them about money, piggy banks, also do some good uh, estate planning. And that's what happens, estate planning. Uh, so that the individuals, when you pass on, the wealth that you amass while you're living can go on. Let me give you an example of what I did for this white guy in Oklahoma City. Uh, he reached out to me in the early 2000 uh, for, for some estate planning. His attorney was a black guy who told him about me. So I flew to Oklahoma City, a little town called Midwest. And the idea that I gave him, he had a son that lived in Hawaii, and he, I called him a surfer dude. All he did was surf halfway, go to school, blah, blah, blah. This guy said, I want him to grow up and run my company one day. I, and all he's getting, he's getting money for going to school. He has no incentive to do anything. So what I told him, what about this? If you die, you tell him he will never get any more than what he's getting today. But if, if he would go to school full time, he would get a salary commensurate where he would earn the first year. And then he'd get 50 cents for every dollar he earned. Then once he finished college, he'd get a dollar for every dollar he earned or he can go to work for your company. If he, do, he does none of those things, he get nothing. That kid's running his company now. Wow. Okay? Wow. You get creative with your estate planning. You know, you, and most of my children, everyone have worked through that, and some of my grandkids too, yeah. <laughs> have worked in my, in my company. Yeah. Now, they don't do what, they never want to do what I do, but they get some idea that, okay, here's someone, someone who owns a company. It's, it's not a foreign concept to them. Right. And then, right. Another thing about a, a business succession is something that we have to do. Uh, I believe in buy-sell agreement, uh, even if that's not a relative. What happens to the company? If you work somewhere and build a multi-million dollar company and you die, does that go away from your family? Right. But that's when you do some succession planning. So even if you have someone who's not a relative, they can come in, run the company, get a nice salary, some stock, but the family... It's not just going to be one of Paris Hilton kind of thing where a kid gets the money and acting crazy. Right. Uh, right. They can receive money based on whatever criteria you want. So if you don't work for a company and you're an individual who works for somebody else, you definitely should do some estate planning. And I like trust, a revocable living trust, a revocable living trust. The neat part about it, when you, while you're alive, you put everything you got in that trust. If you die, it, it, it bypassed probate. So nosy people don't go to probate court to see what you had because they all bypassed probate. Right. Absolutely, people do that. And I also like a corporate trustee. So if you're not sophisticated enough, I still like a corporate trustee because some people think, well, I'm going to leave my money to Joe Blow. He or she'll do the right thing. But then when you leave it to them, that becomes their money. Well, they made me to do the right thing, but then they get a lawsuit or get a divorce and that money is gone. Because you gave it to them, right. it became their right. property. In legal terms, they're culprits. Or in our case, they're principal. So you want to make sure it's in the trust. And so that regardless of what happened to that person, they have no access to the money, no more than what you allowed them to. So when you talk about uh, generational wealth, there must be vehicles in place. There must be education in place to help people do that. And we are the Sims Finance Group in-house. We have a tax attorney in-house. She does wills. She does trusts. Uh, she's an enrolled agent. Uh, when you're in tax trouble, 
take care of that. We also have a full-blown CPA that we work very closely with. So we are, that's why we try to be a one-stop shop. Right, right. Well, I think you said it uh, best. They must, the vehicles must be in place to get you there. So it's just like it's like anything else that you're trying to accomplish in life without the uh, the right vehicles, uh, without the right, right people on your team, it's, it's, it's going to be impossible to get there. So uh, I would encourage everyone, everyone uh, that needs those services to reach out to you. I have one final question for you, and this is really geared towards uh, young people and older people that are seriously considering a career in insurance and, and financial services. Uh, what advice would you, would, would you give them? Right. First of all, you have to look in the mirror and be honest with yourself. Are you a self-starter? That's the main thing. Right. Are you able to work for yourself? Secondly, are you an introverted extrovert? Third thing, does numbers come naturally with you or do you struggle? You get around that with computers and calculators. <laughs> <laughs> Tough for real. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll say most. So, I'll say most. <laughs> mo- mostly, mostly. Right. Will, yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, uh, I would say to you, uh, get a mentor. I'm currently now, I'm mentoring about 120 financial services people. Wow. I do, I train two or three nights a week, uh, train them. We, in fact, uh, we doing a web- we did a webinar last Thursday with the Deltas. I had all my people watching in, and we're doing one for the Court National Coalition of 100 Black Women this coming Thursday. Yeah, uh, we do. I do a lot of webinars to uh, help train and get the message over. So, if you're going to do that, get a, get a mentor. Uh, call someone like myself. We have guys. You might not come work for me, but we we give some idea of what you should do, what you need to learn, where you should go. Uh, sometimes being a captive person is good for a company. They'll bring you in, pay you a salary, uh, and train you. Then you want to go independent, you can do that. I did that with Hancock. I spent 30 years with them, and I, I retired to go independent. Yeah. So I could do that. So, yeah, definitely you want to do that. And hopefully you got a background in finance. Uh, there are some terms you should already be familiar with. Uh, but if you don't, that don't let that dissuade you because when I started, I was 20 years old. I didn't know anything about finances because we never had any finances to know anything about. So that's why. <laughs> so so don't, don't let that stop. Don't let that stop you at all. Okay. Absolutely. So that, yeah. And, and, and I'm giving my phone number if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. The phone number of the Sims financial group is area code 901-680-7500. 901-680-7500. And our website is Sims, S-I-M-S, financialgroup.com. Hey, Charles, I really appreciate it, man. This has been very informative. I'm sure this is going to go down as one of the most informative uh, shows I've had on the uh, on the podcast. I appreciate your time, and I appreciate, appreciate you taking it out. You're busy scheduled to be on the show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Charles Sims, Sims Financial Group. This has been The Sky's the Limit with D. Brown. To find out more about D, go to dbrownceo.com or Google D. Brown CEO. And to connect with the P3 Group, check out the P3GroupInc.com. The Sky's the Limit is a production of self-made D. Brown CEO.